0: And welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. Today, with growing awareness of the ethical and environmental harms of factory farming and animal agriculture as a whole, Both the scientific and innovation and business communities have begun heavily investing in and promoting new technological and farming alternatives such as lab-grown meat or regenerative and free-range agriculture. I personally have gone back and forth at times about what I really think about lab-grown meat and whether or not it's something I support. And if you are someone like me who is concerned with the state of our food system and world and looking for solutions, you may have a lot of questions about lab-grown meat and whether or not it is really an ethical and sustainable solution. So to help us dive into this topic further today, I'm speaking with Dr. Vasile Stanescu, an associate professor of communication studies at Mercer University and an acclaimed author in the field of critical animal studies and sustainability research. Dr. Stanescu has published over 20 peer-reviewed papers on the critical study of animals and the environment and his work has been recognized by numerous organizations including the woods institute for the environment and minding animals international i promise you this is a conversation you don't want to miss if you want to hear more nuance and detail on a topic that has the potential to impact animals and the planet and your health as well and really quickly before we get started I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode of this podcast, and you can also find the links to my other social media pages and YouTube channel if you want to see more of my content or engage with me more frequently. All right. Welcome, Voss. Thank you so much for coming on to have this discussion today and for reaching out. I'm really looking forward to see what we uh, talk about and where this goes with uh, lab-grown meat.
1: Well, before we dive into it, I yeah. want to say that I love your podcast. That's why I reached <laughs> out to it I uh, and your YouTube channel. I'm a follower, a subscriber, and I think the work you're doing could not be more important. All the data suggests that it is people under the age of 50 who in mass are switching to uh, veganism. Of course, anyone can and should, but the data shows that it's people under 50 that are doing it and people under 50 that are doing the organizing are key. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I guess the first thing is, why are we here talking about lab-grown meat and what motivated you to start looking into this issue and topic?
1: Yeah, isn't that a great question? Why are we <laughs> sitting around talking about lab-grown meat? How could any sensical person who is looking at the rate of uh, animal consumption and environment and speciesism, decide that the logical answer would be to clone animals from animal cells. It is a kind of um, post-apocalyptic way of thinking. Their earlier writing about lab-grown meat were in books about like post-apocalyptic worlds or dystopic worlds. Uh, Margaret Atwood talked about chicken nubs, which is in essence, the same thing as lab grown meat. Mm -hmm. And she was trying to imagine a horrific future world. So it really is kind of an interesting question. Uh, To be more specifically, uh, a series of venture capitalists, including uh, people from Google, including Bill Gates uh, have put a lot of money behind developing what is alternatively referred to as lab-grown meat, in vitro meat, clean meat. That's the marketing term that people Mm -hmm. are in favor of it like. And then a bit bizarrely, a series of vegans have also now endorsed this idea and are actively working with companies like Tyson together to produce lab-grown meat. And it is coming. That That is the situation we are at now.
0: For sure. It's happened so quickly. Like I've been, you know, looking into it, talking about it for a couple of years. And I've said from the beginning, like it's coming no matter what anyone once says, or thinks. So the question is not, is it happening? But is it good? Do we support it? And what do we do with it? So for, I just thought for listeners who maybe don't know the science of lab-grown meat, um, can you briefly explain like yeah, cloning like it's taking some cells. Like, what exactly is you know cultured in vitro meat? Like, what is going on here?
1: Right, absolutely. And there's been a lot of misinformation around it. So they take a sample from a farmed animal. Uh, side note, they do have to keep a certain number of animals alive to take new samples. So there's a myth that these samples self-replicate forever. That is untrue. There oh. always <laughs> will be farmed animals to take more samples from. So they take a sample from these farm animals. Then they use a a technique that's been around in biomedicine for quite some time to uh, culture that sample in a growth medium to, in essence, try to make the meat, i.e. the muscle uh, of the animal grow uh, without the animal, so it replicates itself in this growth medium. They use um, actual kind of like workout equipment to sort of stretch the, the meat to make the muscle harder. So we use meat all the time, like, what do we mean? Well, by and large, we actually mean the muscle of the animal So they toughen up uh, this, this meat and then they mass produce it and ship it out. Uh, so that, that, that's sort of it in its nutshell. I do wanna highlight one other part, which is this growth medium. So you'll hear mm-hmm. people use it all the time. They say in vitro meat is produced in a growth medium. Uh, the primary growth medium that is currently used is something referred to as FBS. FBS. And it stands for fetal bovine serum. So it is the blood of unborn cows. It is in no way vegan. Uh, so there are claims by some of these companies that they're trying to develop a different growth medium. There are claims by some of these companies that they have already done so. Perhaps it's all hard to tell. They say it's an industry secret you can't get great data. But what we do know is historically, the major growth medium that has always been used is FBS, fetal bovine serum.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I did want to ask you about that because it's been like a year or two since I've really delved into this topic. And last I had checked, I couldn't find any published papers at all showing Uh, even like proof of concept or an alternative with lab grown meat to fetal bovine serum. It was all, um, it was like lots, I've heard lots of the companies and people working on this claim that they have alternatives. And I've never actually, like when I searched the literature myself. So yeah, I didn't know, maybe there's been an update you, but you still haven't seen like anything documenting it.
1: Well, I mean, so if you talk to someone like uh, Bruce Friedrich, who is the Mm -hmm. CEO of Good Food Institute, the former vice president of PETA and a major proponent of uh, in vitro meat. Here's what Bruce will say. He'll say, look, there's no way FBS can always be the major growth medium because it is too expensive. And FBS is remarkably expensive. It takes a lot of money to extract it from the uh, fetuses of the cows in the slaughter process and there's not a lot to go around. So long-term, he assures everyone all the time, they're going to have to invent a different growth medium. And, uh, and they are absolutely working on it. What is left unsaid is that it is uh, not necessarily the case that this different growth medium would be vegan. Mm-hmm. It is not necessarily the case that this different growth uh, medium would have zero FPS. Perhaps a mixture could occur. What is left unsaid is that different companies could all have different growth mediums. And so we would be in the great position as animal activists and as animal researchers trying to explain to people, well, this in vitro meat uses a plant-based growth medium and this in vitro meat doesn't use a plant-based and it uses the, and so who knows? So even though it is very expensive and even though some companies are claiming that they are working on a plant-based alternative the simple truth is no one truly knows what the growth medium will be and the fact that they've been willing to use this in mass in the past does not give me much hope for the future.
0: Yeah, I mean and one of the concerns I always had is even if currently it's vegans or animal advocates who are trying to find alternatives to FBS to use in this, I've always said it's going to be the big companies like Tyson or the biotech companies. They're the ones in the end that are probably going to end up sort of taking over mass production of any lab grown meat that really goes to market and goes to scale. It's not going to be in the hands of little tiny vegan ethical companies. And so even if some vegan and vegan company comes up with a way that uses an alternative that's you know animal free or something for FBS, my question is, will it stay that way? Or what's to say that if there isn't some cheaper and other animal product that's then used, that Tyson and these other big companies, they wouldn't immediately switch to using it? Thank you
1: so much for that question. That is exactly the question, because, look, we can see this already happened with so-called free range or sustainable meat, uh, who almost all of the same people who now promote in vitro meat earlier promote things like free-ranged eggs. Mm -hmm. What happened was the big animal conglomerates, Tyson, Cargill, just bought these smaller free-range or so-called humane farms, kept the name, kept the higher price, gutted every consideration of animals except for it was minimal to label it at the higher price. You're still just buying it from one company now with two different forms of niche marketing, it is obvious that that is exactly what will happen with in vitro meat, even if just foods run by a vegan, founded by a vegan, seem like good people working to try to create a vegan form of the growth medium works out, what will happen is that it will be bought or a new technology will be created to beat them, run by Tyson, Who has a ton of animal agriculture byproducts sitting around, who has every reason to mix these together, who has no ethical concerns of animals whatsoever. That is how capitalism works. So, obviously, this is what's going to happen again. Why do we keep making the same mistakes?
0: (laughs) Well said. Along those lines, I've also heard the claim from proponents of lab grown meat that companies like Tyson. They don't care what they sell and that it's it's fine if they buy up these companies or start producing lab-grown meat because then that'll trade off with and they'll stop producing, you know, traditional animal flesh. And then they'll, they'll be using lab-grown meat and vegan alternatives and that'll save animals and help the climate and sustainability and all of that. What do you think about the claim that lab-grown meat will trade off with traditional meat at a company like Tyson?
1: Right. That is a fantastic question. That is exactly what they say. There are a few problems with it. The first problem, the model that they want is a blended product. So Tyson and these other mass meat conglomerates are funding in vitro meat because they want to create a product they can blend with traditionally produced factory farmed flesh. Let me give you an example. The creation of polyester did not trade off with the production of cotton. Tons of polyester sold, artificial fabric. The amount of cotton has also gone up. Why is this? Because the number one garment is a blended product. When you go to Target and you look at this product, you'll see it's a blend of polyester and cotton together. The cotton provides some things consumers like, the polyester keeps it cheap. That is the model, that blended product of artificial meat with traditional meat Mm -hmm. that clearly, this is what they tell their own investors. This is not a conspiracy theory that Tyson and Cargill and everyone else who's investing in it wants to achieve. They already have a large amount of traditional animal agriculture. They are not trying to put themselves out of business, but they understand because of environmental limitations, that production of meat and the cost of that meat is going to go up if they can't figure out a way to make it more scalable. Not in environmental sense, but in an economic sense. Mm -hmm. So their view is they take this in vitro meat, they blend it in with the normal animal agriculture at different percentages, like when you go to the store and you try to buy orange juice and you can never buy orange juice because it's a product made with some oranges but it doesn't seem to have much orange in it and so lower price consumers would have a higher amount of in vitro meat like with polyester and as we moved up the higher consumers would have more pure 100 percent real meat and at the very highest consumer they would have this farm supposedly farmed uh, humane farmed amount of meat the point is niche marketing It is not to put themselves out of business. And it is certainly not to save a single animal.
0: I mean, it's Tyson we're talking about. Like, it just baffles me that people really think Tyson is gonna do things to do good in the world or that Tyson like actually cares about sustainability or animals because it's Tyson.
1: (laughs) Thank you for this again. So, right. So that is the other reason they are funding all of this is to stop other changes is to stop regulatory changes, Mm. laws, is to stop a decrease in the amount of funding that they receive. So the U.S. government gives $38 billion each year to the meat and dairy industry, Mm -hmm. which they're completely dependent on. So instead, they can greenwash the industry and say, look, guys, we're not a meat industry, we're a protein industry. That's what they're saying now. Meat is just one of many products that we sell. We're also invested in Plant-based meats were also invested in in vitro meat. And so it allows them to pretend to create a change when no actual change is happening. There's one other point I really want to emphasize. You mentioned in vitro meat is coming. I think it is. Even if it doesn't, the damage of the idea of in vitro meat still exists. So first of all, all these additional uh, fetuses of the cows are being killed for one of the mass forms of animal experimentation we've seen in our lifetime that vegans are supporting. Mm -hmm. And a huge amount of money is given to the in vitro meat just to try to develop it. But even in addition to that, the fact that we have to make hard decisions in a short period of time is hidden. Because now every single time I talk to people, what they tell me is, I don't have to make a decision. In vitro meat is on the way. The problem will be solved by technology. I can just keep doing what I'm doing and technology will solve the problem. That is the biggest problem with in vitro meat.
0: Like I have a problem with the technology is our solution thing in general. And I've heard that from Bruce Friedrich, from the Good Food Institute and others. And I always feel like it's an extremely reductionist way of looking at things. It doesn't get the big picture. Like even the examples I've heard some of the, lab-grown meat proponents put forward of, like, you know, we used to kill whales for kerosene, like, for oil, and then when we invented fossil fuels, when we started using oil, like, it saved so many whales, and I'm like, okay, in the big scheme of things, how much damage have fossil fuels and oil done, and to animals? Like, okay, maybe there were a few less whales-killed whales killed for their blubber. But is that really helping animals in the long run? Or like the invention of the car and and not using horse and buggies to drive anymore? It's like, how many animals get killed by roads that cars drive on every year? Like, was that a net positive for animals in the long run? And they try to frame it as though technology is our solution because they look at it through such a narrow reductionist lens.
1: I literally want to like applaud you, it's like, yes, the very examples, the proponents of in vitro meat give, not critics, the people arguing for it, Peter Singer, Bruce Frederick, etc. cetera, Paul Shapiro, don't make any sense. You gave the example of the fact that they talk about artificial light replacing the use of blubber from wells, sure, leaving out the fact that transition to technology has decimated our seas that we will have more pounds of plastic than fish in our seas in a very short period of time, that this has been fueled by these technological innovations, um, that wells are infinitely less off, well off based on technology with speciesism and the climate change that's done by the energy. The other example they give is uh, the funding of cars versus horses. And they say, look, horses used to be mistreated And then uh, because people needed to drive them around and use work with them. And then we created fossil fuels, a horseless car. We didn't have to make anyone less specious and somehow all these horses are better off. First of all, millions of horses are still owned and abused right now. So that's just not even true. Horses are still hurt, bred and killed by the millions. We didn't somehow become less specious and stop hurting horses. But then fossil fuels are what are driving climate change which is worse for humans, but also for animals, which will have even less access to food, to uh, air conditioning, to uh, avoiding elements, to migration patterns. It's net worse. And the same argument is what is exactly wrong with in vitro meat. All of the peer reviewed studies, except for one which I can tell you about in a second, have concluded that it takes more fossil fuels, i.e. worse for the environment, to make in vitro meat than even CAFOs.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to go next, actually. I want to hear, because that's that's the research that I haven't looked into. Like, I look at this from a more, um, from the animal rights and efficacy perspective there. I haven't looked recently at the literature on the sustainability and what the energy inputs for growing meat in a lab actually are. But I know that they're making lots of claims that this is so much more sustainable. It's taking the animal out of the equation, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, like what have you found when you've read the literature? What what first of all, what are the sustainability claims that proponents of lab grown meat are making? And then what do you think the evidence really says?
1: Yeah. So the claims are massive. So, for example, an article in Bloomberg argued uh, for in vitro meat. And here was the claim. A University of Oxford study of cultured meat estimated 90% savings on resources, including feed, water, land, waste disposal, and greenhouse gas emissions over the massive environmental cost of animal husbandry. Well, so those are fantastic claims. 90% decrease of all forms of resources, including feed, water, land, and greenhouse gas emissions. The problem is virtually all of these claims are based on one study. It was a study that was done by a PhD candidate at Oxford. So it was not a Oxford study in any meaningful sense of that term. So this PhD candidate did this thought experiment. Uh, She did no actual studies of any in vitro meat whatsoever. And her studies were based on a whole host of suppositions. She just assumed that this was the case that no in vitro meat industry currently uses. And there is no evidence that they will do so in the future. Uh, So she used types of algae as the uh, growth medium, even though no one uses this type of algae in the growth Uh medium, and there's no evidence they will do so in the future. So if you don't actually study the way in vitro meat is currently made, if you assume a bunch of factors about how it can be made, and then you run the numbers, then you can make the numbers look astounding. Relatedly. the Good Food Institute recently released a statement saying that there was another study which had proven that in vitro meat was sustainable. I was quite taken back. I tried to find the study. It actually took me like several days. It's not a wow. study, that was the problem. They commissioned a consulting industry. They paid for it and said, hey, give us the data. And the data was, they did in essence the same thing. They didn't study how any in vitro meat is currently produced They did a series of thought experiments and one of their key assumptions is that all of the uh, energy to create in vitro meat would be used from renewable sources, so like solar panels. Mm -hmm. Sure, if you make all of the energy come from solar panels, You can make a study that claims that in vitro meat is scalable, but you could also do the same thing if you took a Hummer and you claimed, well, we're just going to charge it as an electric car. You can make a Hummer look in a study more sustainable than, say, um, a Yaris. But that's not a true comparison. You still have a net wasteful industry. There's still no analysis saying that it's not consuming vastly larger amounts of energy than if you didn't do it that way. So, unsurprisingly, all other peer-reviewed studies, of which there have been several, have all concluded that in vitro meat would use more fossil fuel inputs, larger GHG emissions than even CAFOs. It is net harmful. It is not sustainable. Talking about it is a waste of time because we cannot support the industry, period.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, I like I worked in a cell biology lab, although I hadn't looked at the research on the sustainability from just sort of a logical perspective. It's, I mean, like when I was growing, I was growing breast cancer cells in a lab and you've got all these little plastic flasks. And then you have the autoclave because you're always sterilizing everything because it has to be sterile so that the cells don't get contaminated with bacteria and they die. Cells die very easily. It's actually quite hard to keep cells alive in a lab especially compared to like growing bacteria on petri dishes like that's much easier keeping like cells alive in a lab is quite difficult requires a lot of inputs you have to keep the the temperature and the co2 and the pressure like all at a very specific level and if it varies a little bit your cells will probably die and it's just there's lots of inputs that go to and i was growing you know like little tiny like like a a little tiny container of a few thousand cells that weren't visible, not like whole pieces of flesh in giant, you know, bioreactors or anything. And so I can't imagine the energy inputs that it would take to maintain an environment that is sterile and conducive to growing meat in a lab that just, so, so I always had this view of like, yeah, like maybe we're cutting out the grazing and the the animal, you know, greenhouse gas emissions there. But if you're just going to the grid then all you're doing, like if you're you're having to grow it in a lab that uses a lot of energy, all you're doing is shifting how and where you're producing those emissions. So they're not coming from cows out in the field, but now it's just going into the grid. So yeah, if the grid was a fully sustainable renewable grid, I can see how it would be more sustainable. If it's not, you're just producing more coal uh, to feed your system and grow meat with fossil fuels instead.
1: That is exactly correct. So uh, for your listeners, I know sometimes peer reviewed studies can be difficult to get. So there's an article in the Atlantic that makes exactly the same point you made. So I'll just briefly read one paragraph from the article and they're talking about in vitro meat. Cell cultures are one of the most expensive and resource intensive techniques in modern biology. Keeping the cells warm, healthy, well-fed, free of contamination, takes incredible labor and energy. In addition, even in these sophisticated vats, the three-dimensional techniques that are required to grow actual steak with a mix of muscle and fat have not been invented yet. And on top of that, the fact that these three-dimensional wads of meat have to be exercised regularly with stretching machinery, essentially elaborate meat gyms, and you begin to understand the incredible challenges of scaling in vitro meat. In other words, exactly the point you make. It is a massively resource intensive technology. It does shift from one type, the space that we need now to raise and kill approximately 70, 80 billion land animals each year. Obviously in vitro meat takes up less space. That is good. That space is bad. That was the problem with free range farming. It took up more room. But what they're doing is the shell game they always do, which is they just shift it to a different type of harm for the environment. But we don't have room or time for a different type of harm. We actually have to decrease the total amount of consumption of animal products regardless of the source.
0: Well, and that's, you know, talking about reducing total consumption of animal products. That is one of the issues I've had with some of the claims I've heard about lab-grown meat is the justification for it, as I understand it, is not everyone's going to eat plant-based meat, which we know is already more sustainable for real than, you know, factory farming, so they claim not everyone's going to eat plant-based meat. Those meats aren't realistic enough. People don't like the taste of it. They're not going to give up real meat. So we need better, more realistic solutions, such as, you know, lab-grown meat. And I am skeptical, like, sure, there's some people that will eat it, uh, you know, totally. And, the, and then the the flip side, the claim that they make as well is this isn't for you know, everyone. This is for the average consumer that buy, that chooses what they buy at the store based on taste, price, and convenience. And to me, those two things are contradictory. So basically you're saying you're just going to switch out the junk food, fast food, cheap, crappy, you know, Tyson meat that people are buying now for your lab grown meat. In which case, why not just use a plant-based meat there instead? Because, If the argument then is there's some people that will never eat plant based meat, you know, but they'll eat lab grown meat, I'm skeptical of that too, because you've got like the happy meat, the regenerative agriculture, the community that likes natural and, you know, uh, real meat. They're never going to eat, like, if they're not going to eat plant based meats because that's too weird or gross or not natural, where is the evidence that those people are going to want to eat lab grown meat if, like, plant based meats? Are, aren't, you know, natural enough for them. And so I just find that some of the arguments for this technology are a little bit contradictory and it's confusing to me who their target audience really is and like who's really behind this and pushing it and what do they hope to achieve out of it? Because I don't think it's, it's just like, it's clearly not an evidence-based solution on all the fronts they claim it is.
1: I understand why people who are proponents for meat, I understand why Tyson, uh, et cetera, are in favor of vitro meat. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Um, They're trying to create a blended product. They're trying to make it scalable. They're trying to feed meat to large populations in countries like India that have very large vegetarian populations, these kinds of things.
0: So profit. Profit,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect profit for them. For the life of me, I cannot figure out why any vegan is wasting one second on this nonsense. I mean, think of the amount of money, resources, and time that we are investing in producing in vitro meat, that we're investing in marketing in vitro meat, that we're investing in organizing for in vitro meat, and doing good uh, PR for it. Why aren't we spending any of this time on something which is actually vegan, something that is actually scalable, I have no idea. I mean, it is bizarre. How does this make logical sense? That's why I started with, why are we even talking about it? Who, when they look at speciesism, who, when they say, you know, we, we have all these animals that are being killed, what should we do? Okay, well, we should clone animals to give people meat at the cheapest possible price. How is that the way that vegans, some vegans are thinking? Ezra Klein recently published an article in the New York Times that criticized cheap meat factory farms, and he used particularly the phrase cheap meat. He then argued for in vitro meat. At no point did he argue for raising the cost of meat. In vitro meat, if produced at scale, will lead to more cheap meat. At no point did he argue for ending the subsidies to the meat industry, which is what makes it so artificially cheap. So how is that thought process even happening is, is a distressing, almost mystery.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and coming from being vegan a long time and I come at it from an ethical animal liberation perspective, but I also care about the health. And that's been a long staple in a lot of vegan advocacy as well Is you know, helping people recognize the health benefits of a plant-based diet. And in particular, like one of the issues that I have is when it comes to cheap meat and fast food we've got these food deserts and situations where there's you know racial inequity and socio economic inequity where cheap meat is being most pushed on some of the unhealthiest and impoverished communities that don't have access to healthy whole plant foods. And so I get a little concerned when I hear, well, we're just gonna target the same people and just trade out, you know, cheap meat with lab grown meat. It's like, that is not addressing any of those root issues. And lab grown meat is still gonna cause all of the same heart disease and diabetes and health problems cause it's still animal protein. It's still flesh. It's still cholesterol. And, and that's just me coming at it from a holistic perspective where like, I don't like the idea. Like I, I think one of the things about taking a holistic, you know, approach to veganism and animal liberation is that when we change the system, when we get rid of subsidies, when meat prices go up, when we make plant foods, healthy plant foods, more accessible widely, you know, especially here in the United States, that not only is that going to help us get to animal liberation, but that also can help humans and human communities and human injustice and human health and our sustainability and environmental problems. It's like such a like all encompassing solution that we already have and pushing lab grown meat doesn't address so many of those issues and potentially continues to facilitate harms in those areas.
1: The supposed revolution that we're being sold is people drive to Burger King, which is still exploiting its workers, which is still fighting against a living wage, which is still doing massive problems in terms of packaging, which is producing incredibly unhealthy, horrible food for uh, in food deserts and for people without a lot of other options. And then people wait in line. And then instead of ordering the uh, normal hamburger, they order the in vitro uh, meat hamburger. And that's supposedly what we're supposed to fight for as vegans. I mean, you can make analogies to other social justice movements. I'm not arguing that animal rights is the same as any other social justice problem. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying we should not repeat the mistakes others have made, where you can see certain strains of feminism that argued the only thing we should argue or fight for in feminism is keep capitalism same, keep uh, the war machine the same, and just replace uh, some of the leaders of this with women instead of men. And people go, wait, how is that really feminism? Or you can see that with uh, certain aspects of the LGBTQ plus movement where the gay pride parade suddenly is being sponsored by Verizon and the most corporate pinkwashing thing I can imagine. And you go, how is this really a queer revolution? Well, that same thing is now happening to us. A truly radical, social justice stance that mattered is being given away quickly for something that doesn't matter. Swapping out the Burger King Whopper for the in vitro Whopper just doesn't matter. And isn't really veganism.
0: Absolutely agree. I also have been concerned about, um, you know companies like Monsanto and Bayer and the genetic modification of food and seed in terms of how that's allowed, you know, patenting and corporate control of the seed and food supply. And I wonder, and I, I'm curious what your thoughts are because, like, I see another problem of lab grown meat being that it's, you know, as we can already see, we don't know how they're growing it and which companies using fetal bovine serum or an alternative because it's like a trade secret. How do we know that we're going to have any idea what's actually in our food if it's like it's going the opposite direction of local communities and or, you know, organic or veganic gardening and and people like saving seeds and being able to collect their generations of, you know, like indigenous seed and communities. It seems like this is to me more corporate consolidation of our food supply heading in a direction where we are going to have less control over what we're consuming, knowing what we're consuming. And, and, you know, do you see that same thing or what do you think about that?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, it goes to your earlier point of who is this even for and uh, which part of the progressive food movement is this going to align with? And it goes to our earlier conversation about like, well, let's just give up virtually everything. That we say that we care about. Let's be not even single issue because it's not actually going to help animals. But let's be like half issue, and uh, and you know, and 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 then let's just really focus on that right now. You know, the the odd thing that I've experienced is so much of my life I've been criticized not by meat eaters but by fellow vegans, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why. And it started with the humane meat wherein I would give talks and vegans would stand up and tell me I was wrong or, or, or heckle me during the talk as I was criticizing humane meat. And many of those people have now decided that they were wrong about humane meat. None of them have sort of apologized and said, sorry, we wasted so much time and so many years of the movement that we can never get back. We needed all those years and we just wasted all that time for nothing. And then these exact same people without a gap have moved on to the new Uh, not a scientifically based theory of how we're going to keep eating meat. And now again, I spend my time saying here's the peer-reviewed research and that I'm getting heckled, not by the meat industry, but by vegans saying that I don't care about animals and I'm not doing enough about animals because I'm pointing out that they, in both cases, are advocating for meat, a product that is not vegan. Why can't vegans be vegan? (laughs) Why? Why? Why is that impossible for our social justice movement? I I truly wonder about this.
0: Yeah. Then this to me is even more of a gray area. What do you think about like the new cultured or lab grown dairy products, which to my understanding really are a hundred percent animal free. Like my understanding is they're taking bacteria, genetically modifying bacteria so that they produce like whey or casein protein that then they're, they're culturing these bacteria. And, and to be fair, they're not even being upfront that they're genetically modifying bacteria with like animal based, you know, DNA and proteins. They're, they're kind of obscuring that fact, but that is what's going on. But then it is truly animal free. And this stuff is already on the shelf, like brave robot ice cream that supposedly is like animal free. And, they're not labeling it vegan, but I see some people calling it vegan and, and, you know, like, what are your thoughts on that area of stuff?
1: Yeah, that is a more complicated issue. Uh, uh, there's another professor who's working on that, who I'm going to be a podcast with a couple of days where, and you could make a stronger argument for, uh, in vitro dairy versus in vitro meat for exactly the reasons that you give. Uh, but there's still a few things that I would go back to. So the first one is, why do we think that will actually help? The problem is not a lack of consumerist options. There have always been fantastic vegan options. Creating new consumerist options will not help. And we gave the terrible examples they give of cars and whaling. There's plenty of other examples, butter and margarine. When margarine was first created, sells artificial dairy, original plant-based artificial dairy from back in the day. Sales of butter went down for a little bit, uh, but then people decided they didn't like margin. They got concerned about trans fats. They romanticized butter. Butter now outsells margarine in the United States. We can see it with lab-grown diamonds versus diamonds that are extracted from the ground. It is almost impossible for me to find an example or a consumerist option, any consumerist option on its own actually produced any social good. That's just not how things work under capitalism. Let me give an example. Day one marketing class, they frequently, the the professor will ask the students, imagine there's a Coke machine and you had a Pepsi machine beside it. What do you guess would happen to the sales of Coke? Would they go down? How much? The answer is the sales of Coke go up. And in fact, Coke and Pepsi know this, which is why they try to put their machines together. And there's only a Coke machine People go, do I want a soft drink or do I not want a soft drink? And about half the time, they don't get a soft drink. They drink water.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When the Coke is by Pepsi, the consumer thinks, do I want a Coke or do I want a Pepsi? And the sales of both increase. Consumers are not rational. We do not make rational options. Adding another consumer's option will not help.
0: Wow. So what would you have us focus on then to solve, you know, our, our problems with the food system? What do you think vegans or animal advocates and sustainability advocates should be spending our time working on if it's not lab-grown meat and consumerist options?
1: Uh, the clearest, easiest, and most direct thing we need to do is end government subsidies. For the meat industry, as I mentioned before, they just last year they gave thirty-eight billion dollars with the B to the meat industry. Thirty-eight billion dollars. We're not actually vegans. We think we are, but we aren't. I mean, we aren't actually vegans in the sense that animal exploitation is intrinsic in every product that we buy. So it tires to band-aids. I mean, I don't even consume sugar because of the bone char processing. But I'm not vegan because it's impossibly vegan. But we're also not vegan because I pay taxes. So I'm directly paying for the meat industry all the time. Everyone is, you can't get around it. The EU, it's even more, 53 billion euros per year, every year. Wow. And so nothing we're gonna do, even by boycott, even just being vegans is going to achieve anything until we create these change. So let me give you an example. Bruce Frederick and others like to give this example to prove that these alternatives work of how they claim alternatives to the dairy industry have led to a decrease in consumption of dairy. So let's say, hey, look, we got all these great options of like soy milk and what have you. And this has led to people consuming less dairy. Well, actually people were consuming less dairy before these alternatives even happened. That's not actually correct, but whatever. It is true that consumption of dairy has radically declined. So to throw in a couple of numbers, we're on a scientific podcast. In 1975, uh, per capita consumption of dairy was 275 pounds. Currently it's about 149 pounds. That's a significant decline. In fact, all dairy in the United States now functions at a loss. So they lose about 10 bucks net uh, per 100 pounds of milk. So there's this old Saturday Night Live skit about uh, business. All they do is make change. You give them a dollar, they give you four quarters. And they're like, how do you make money? Volume. Well, it's the same kind of thing. The dairy industry on volume just loses more money the more they make because of a radical decrease of consumption of dairy. This should be the vegan goal. We boycotted it. They created new consumers options. Total consumption went down, but that's not what we see. The dairy industry is doing fine. They are producing as much dairy as ever. They're hurting as many animals as ever. Why? Government subsidies. In 2014, the government, United States government gave $24.7 billion to the dairy industry. In 2016, they gave $43 billion to the dairy industry. By 2018, 42% of all of the revenue of the dairy industry came from the government.
0: Wow. And when
1: we get rid of government subsidies, nothing else we're going to do is actually going to matter because all that will happen is the government will just replace dollar for dollar each dollar that the industry loses.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I completely agree that subsidies have got to go and we don't see enough focus on that at all.
1: I mean, and let me just say a bigger issue because like subsidies, I don't know, it sounds boring. What I mean is animal liberation should conceive of itself as a political issue, as a political movement. If I was to say to just any vegan, what is the political movement you're a part of? What is the goal? What are you trying to achieve politically? I couldn't tell you what the answer was. It is is as though it was a multi-level marketing scheme. I go vegan. Okay, great. Now what I'm supposed to do, you're supposed to convince two other people to go vegan. Well, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to convince two other people to go vegan. I teach a class on animals every year since I've been a professor, virtually. Many of the students go vegan. They come to me, they have this amazing experience, this, I oh my God, what are we going to do? Well, the only thing currently that the mainstream animal rights movement has is go tell some other people to go vegan. So I'm not saying that doesn't matter. Of course, we should tell people to go vegan. Of course, it's good if people go vegan. Obviously I support this, but there should be something else. We should be going vegan towards something we're trying to achieve something that is large scale, substantial, real, policy oriented, political, social justice oriented in line with other social justice movements, if it is always these consumerist options, we're not gonna achieve much of anything.
0: Yeah, I I agree. and And I mean, I will add that I think too, that maybe it would help if we made a little bit more of a distinction in the vegan movement or whatever, between getting people to eat a vegan diet and actually becoming anti-speciesist ethical vegans. Because like, I I do try to get people to go vegan. That's what I do with my YouTube channel and, and website and a lot of my work. However, I don't just want people to change their diet. And I don't think that even if we got 50% of the world to stop eating animals, that that would actually stop harming animals or fix our solutions. But if we got even 10 or 15% maybe to become anti-speciesist ethical vegans who also didn't eat animals, but it was more than just a diet to them, that I think has the potential to really transform things. That has the potential to end subsidies, to change how our government and and how we view animals in society. I think that paradigm shift is absolutely crucial. And I think that we can't ignore that. And sometimes I also think that We aren't going to get some of the policy changes, not necessarily subsidies, which we could achieve right now. But I see some groups that are also like working on like ban meat in Berkeley or like campaigns like this. And personally, I don't think that is going to be the most successful unless and until enough people, including those working in government or people that would be enforcing such a law. Are like are anti-speciesist themselves and believe that it's wrong to use and exploit animals for human purposes.
1: Yes, of course. I absolutely agree with you. Veganism is not a diet. Articulating it as a diet is to give up the whole game on so many levels. In terms of access, you just talked about food deserts and people not being able to access valid options. My partner and I were in Oakland, for several years in a food desert. There were four highways around us. Uh, Many of the people didn't have a car. There were no grocery stores. Uh, There were a few liquor stores, uh, which are often inaccurately listed as grocery stores to hide the reality of food deserts. You'd walk in them. You would see mothers trying to buy food for their children. I cannot tell you how one of my neighbors in this area of Oakland could have been vegan if they did not have a car structurally. Yeah. I had another uh, friend and researcher who purchased a new home, uh, vegan for many years. And what he liked about his new construction home is that he could see deer. But the reason he could see deer was because he was living in what had just recently been their home before it had been bulldozed to create his home. Where are these animals going to live? We actually have to deal with speciesism. There is no other way we should articulate animal liberation in terms of speciesism, anthropocentrism, and what have you. And kind of what was behind our earlier conversation is the problem with in vitro meat is the lie of speciesism is that animals are machines or should be like machines. The problem with in vitro meat, it says, well, the way to fix that is to make them even more like machines. We weren't wrong. To treat virtually every other living creature on the planet as an inanimate machine that exists just for our pleasure, we just hadn't figured out how to do it right yet. Mm -hmm. It is more speciesist. It's to double down on the speciesism and to give up the whole struggle out of the gate.
0: Right. Nothing wrong with taking a few cells from animals every now and then whenever we need to. Nothing wrong with a little fetal bovine serum from the fetus inside a pregnant mother cow. Nothing wrong with that. As long as we do it less and just a little bit and get it to be much more efficient and sustainable. Nothing wrong with any of that.
1: I mean, animals are still ownable and sellable commodities. Yeah. Right. We can still own and sell and buy them. You know, I mean, in philosophy courses, you learn about utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number, and people go, well, that's would justify all kinds of horrible things. We shouldn't go there. Well, we don't have to imagine that theoretically, like the trolley experiment. Which way does the trolley go? Mm-hmm. We don't have to imagine that. We can see it here firsthand. you have vegans funding mass animal experimentation that uses the blood of unborn children because later they think the consequences will justify it? Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, we And who is it going to appeal for? I mean, exactly none of my students are interested in anything that um, is insincere, fake, and partial. I think everybody is starting to get it. We're running out of time. We have to be honest. We need radical change. And we need things that are real, heartfelt, and really work. And, um, you know, we need a broad-based social justice movement around animal liberation that is principled and actually has a series of things that we care about. Um, I don't think we're gonna get that if we're fighting for consumerist options.
0: Uh, any, any last words you wanna add? Although that was uh, very well put, what you just said.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think that's fine, but thank you. I, what I will say is thank you. I mean, um, yeah, I've been vegetarian since I was nine years old, vegan since I was in college. Amazing. And uh, obviously what animals go through is infinitely worse. And obviously as a white vegan, What many other social justice issues go through is far worse. It is also true that there is a great deal of abuse, teasing social stigma against vegans in the United States. And there's plenty of data to back that up. And so I just love and support every single vegan. I know we all go through. it. so matters and I'm just so grateful for every single one of you, thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the Sciences Gray podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you would leave a rating and review of the podcast in iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you're listening to this podcast.